I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to Talking Golf History. Before we start our show today, we at Talking Golf History and the Society of Golf Historians would like to give our love and deepest condolences to the family and friends of Mr. Ben Wright. Vaughn Hallier and I were lucky enough to have spent seven hours with Ben and his wife, over the past year, helping him tell his unique golf history. From his friendship with Ben Hogan, to how he was the first person to put the Beatles on TV, to his recollections of some of golf's most historic characters. I was heartbroken to hear of his passing, and hope in some small part, our six hours of interviews help keep his spirit alive. Now back to our show. God measures men by what they are, not what they in wealth possess. This vibrant message chimes afar, the voice of Inverness. This is the inscription on the grandfather clock inside the doors of the Inverness Club in Toledo, Ohio. This clock was a gift suggested by Walter Hagen and his fellow tour players in gratitude to being treated as an equal. This clock measures more than time, It measures the heart of a membership who opened its doors to professionals when no other club would. Today we discuss the history of the Inverness Club with their club historian Michael McCullough. Today we get to hear the story from the club's perspective. We proudly introduce the voice of Inverness. Today we welcome the Inverness Club's historian Mike McCullough to the show. Mike, thank you for joining us on Talking Golf History. Thank you, Connor. Nice to meet you. Absolutely. The story of Inverness Club cannot be told without the contributions of S.P. Germain. How did the father of Toledo golf make his mark here in Toledo and nationally? Yeah, I mean, we're really proud to have S.P. as part of our history in Toledo. And, you know, a lot of people call him the grandfather of golf in Toledo. I, I take it a little step further and say that he was instrumental in bringing golf to Ohio. So in 1899, he brought Ottawa Park, you know, a nine-hole course. Uh, I've heard some people say it's the oldest course west of New York. I've heard it referenced as the second oldest public golf course in the country. In any event, it's an old golf course. It's here in Toledo, nine holes. And four years later, he started Inverness Club. So he wanted a private course. Uh, He and a few friends, there was an old trolley line on Door Street, which Inverness is on. And the trolley line ended about two and a half miles to the to our east okay and there's a cemetery out there so they had to get off the trolley line that took them from downtown out to the i guess you could say the boondocks and uh, there's an old farm the Searle farm and so they walked two and a half miles to that farm to look for some suitable land for a golf course and this is like february 1903 so there's snow on the ground and they're checking out you know the area they see the topography they can tell with the snow and there's some leaves on the ground. 
and they lift those leaves off the ground where they find some you know soil that isn't touched by the snow and they kind of grab some dirt and they say this this is the spot because they could tell the sandy the sandy loam soil as they say and so they decided that this is going to be a really good spot for you know a, a private golf course so sp uh started the golf course in 1903 he got some investors uh that would would help start you know the financing of not just the construction of the golf course but of the clubhouse itself and francis germain we didn't talk about this earlier but she was the director of the library system in toledo and a very very educated smart woman and she was talking to her son sp and he said you know i'm not sure what to name the golf course and she said well the game comes from scotland and they looked at a map and there's a town obviously to the north called inverness scotland and she said you know inverness stands for innerness or inner body of water and you have a stream that goes through that entire property where you want to put your golf course. I think that'd be an appropriate name. So he took that a step further and said, why don't we get the permission from the town of Inverness, Scotland to adopt their coat of arms? So the coat of arms has a camel and an elephant with a knight, you know, helmet and, you know, a shield with a cross. So a lot of people that come through our halls and ask, they always ask, where did your coat of arms come from? How did you get the camel and the elephant? I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. So the camel and the elephant is basically signifying the trade with the West Indies that the Northern Scotland towns used to do, uh, you know, used to, you know, trade a lot of goods and services with uh, the West Indies. So they adopted the camel and elephant with their coat of arms. And so subsequently Inverness taking the coat of arms from the town, we adopted their camel and elephant. So that's, that's so cool. That came right? About. Yeah. So in any event, so that's that's a little bit of history with uh, with SP starting the golf course. And he was a really interesting fellow, right? I mean, his his shape on American golf extended beyond that. I know we talked briefly before about how he had this vision. We don't know much beyond the vision of having free public golf across the United States to grow the game. And there was something about the American code of golf, which was, I think, translating the rules of the RNA for the United States and the USGA. Is, is that your... Yeah, so he helped um, kind of bring about sort of a translation of the RNA's rules into America and helped uh, sort of adopt and rewrite some of those rules, which are still used to this day. So there's almost an amalgam of the rules that that came about through the help of SP. So he had his fingerprints all over that. He had his fingerprints on uh, bringing the game on a national, international stage with matches against Europe. so Yeah, that, go into that a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, that, and I might be jumping ahead of myself. No, you're but fine. after 1920 and our first Open, um, you know, the Brits obviously fared well and Ted Ray ended up being varded by, by a stroke. And SP thought, you know, it'd be really neat to see uh, matches uh, between the Americans and the Europeans or the Americans and the British. And the only reason that it's not called the Germain Cup and it's called the Ryder Cup is because Samuel Ryder was the one that sort of got to funding yeah. the trophy first before SP Germain. But SP is is credited with coming up with the, uh, the entire idea for the Ryder Cup. Could have been the Germain Cup. It could have been. How crazy would that have been? Yeah, it could have been. Well, let's rewind a little bit further then. Let's go back to, uh, it was first designed as a nine-hole course. This is Donald Ross, as most people know, as, is credited for the design that we have today. It was first designed in 1903, and who was the first man attributed, who's been attributed as the designer? Yeah, so Bernard Nichols uh, gets sort of the nod to help design the golf course. And I say help because there are two 
avid golfers who are really, really good, Frank and Harold Weber. And Harold Weber actually is in the Ohio Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, we have a plaque downstairs in our locker room for him. He was also uh, on the 1904 Olympic team in St. Louis. And uh, he and three other uh, Inverness members brought home the bronze, which not a lot of people know about that. That's really cool. Yeah. Which is a cool story. So Bernard Nichols got help from the Weber boys. And we also brought in uh, our superintendent, Rocky Rockefeller. Okay. So Great Bill, name. Bill Rockefeller who is part of the Rockefeller family from the East Coast, and I believe he came from Philadelphia. But um, Rocky, very much, he was an avid golfer. He kind of came late to the game and sort of had a career before that. He was a musician uh, and a couple other things, but then got into uh, the whole idea of sort of being a keeper of the greens, golf course superintendent. And so he was our super from 1903 when we started up until – uh, he died in 1932. He died right after the 31 Open. And so with his help and Bernard Nichols' sort of vision and the Weber boys, they developed that first nine-hole course. And the, and the funny thing about the, the first nine-hole course, when they started laying it out, they realized that they only had room for eight holes. So they had to fit in a ninth hole, which became that par three, which under the Ross routing, Ross actually kept this hole. It was our number 13, par 3, which was up on the bluff, sort of up from 18 fairway, current 18 fairway. Interesting. And, and of that design, I think you believe that one of the holes still exists from Bernard Nichols' design, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, and, and it was Andrew Green who sort of told us this when he did the latest renovation in 2016 and 17. Our current hole 15 is a hole that basically has survived all the way back to that original 1903 9-hole. That's golfers. so cool, yeah, it was right? Really cool. And the other cool thing I found out about that when I was doing a little research on it, we talked about this earlier, but Bernard Nichols, you know, in this course or club of giants, right? I mean, there's so much history here; it's a, it's, it's almost hard to take down. You have Bernard Nichols was this giant killer. So three years prior to coming out and designing Inverness, uh, he actually played Harry Varden when Varden came to the United States in 1900, and Varden just kicked everybody's butts. I mean, he, I don't, he probably played 200 matches before the U.S. Open. And a lot of times he was so good, he was taking on two professionals, best ball against his ball, and still beating them. And when he did occasionally win, it would be a handicap. You know, I'm sure back then we even had sandbaggers. Uh, but here we had Bernard Nichols, who played Varden almost right off the boat um, from overseas, and he beats him straight up in New York. And then... If, if you want to use that as an excuse, that's fine, because he just came off this long trip. But at the end of the trip, after the U.S. Open, Bernard Nich- Nichols um, challenges him again and beats him again. So, like, in the heart of his prime. Uh, he, I mean, I think he was something incredible, like, I, I'm, I'm going to just guess, but it was like 100, you know, mat- 100 wins to, like, 10 losses, and there were only two losses that were to an individual man. I mean, he was beating our best pros when they were ganging up on him in a best ball. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And here is, you know, the designer of your course, the original designer of their course, this giant killer who took on Varden, you know, not like in 1913, not that he wasn't great then, but like in the heart of his prime and beat him twice on American soil, which is fantastic. Yeah, there's some really good golfers that came out of Toledo, especially at that time. And I, I don't know if it was something in the water or what the deal was, yeah. but uh, Charlie Lorms, who was our head pro in 20, uh, fared pretty well. Up until uh, he got to the ninth hole in his last round of the 20 Open, and I think he carded like an eight, and it blew up his scorecard. But he was a really good player. Um, uh, Lloyd Gullickson, who was our pro in the um, 
in the 50s, he actually uh, was in the 20 Open. He actually was in 20 U.S. Opens. Lloyd Gardner, wow. our head pro in the 50s. Uh, but he was on his honeymoon, which is kind of a weird story. And so he was a little distracted, and he didn't play very well in the 20 Open. But well, That um, might do that to you. Yeah. I mean, he's on your honeymoon. Brand new wife standing in the crowd, like, looking at her watch, like, come on. You know, we've got something to do. Yeah. Crazy. So what do we know after 1903? So it's a nine-hole course. Do we know when it became an 18-hole course? And who who were the touch points? Who was involved with that? Yes, expansion? it's the same guys. So Bernard Nichols... Um, you know, made it an 18-hole course in 1911. We had the blueprint for that. And that 18-hole course, for the most part, looks a lot different than what Ross did. Really? Yeah. So it was a scrape for the most part. It was pretty much a scrape. He kept a handful of holes, let's say five, in some of the routing, but there's a lot of things that were changed, especially sort of in that northeast quadrant of where current eight and current 18 and current nine are. So 1916 comes around. They, the club hires Donald Ross, who was well-known back then, uh, to renovate the course. What can you share about Ross's hire and his subsequent work at Inverness? Yeah, so he was brought in in 16. We have in our minutes um, proof of that. We also have proof in our minutes that he was on property uh, not once, not twice, but three times, which is interesting because a lot of the golf course designers back then, I mean, you're, you're talking about train travel. And I, I saw, I read something somewhere that uh, it was estimated that Ross may have only been on a third of his properties that he actually designed. And he was here, we have on record three times. Uh, as a matter of fact, he came as late as 1920. So he did the golf course in 17 and 18. He finished it in 18. We get the nod to get the Ohio Open in 19. That goes great. And the USGA... SP had a really good relationship with the USGA, and so we get the nod to have the 20 open. So it's very different than it is now where they plan these things 10 or 12 years. Back then, it was about a year turnaround. So Ross came back in the spring of 1920 to touch up some things. Uh, He worked a little bit on 18 green. uh, That's in our minutes. Um, And then um, maybe tinkered on a few other things. But I think he knew that this golf course was going to be on his resume, uh, and it's going to be shown in a, in a big open, our national open, and he wanted to make sure that it was, it was ready to go. Well, and to that point, I mean, he wasn't one to go on and on about his work. And it's one of those six or seven courses that he did mention about courses he was proud of working on, which really probably speaks to the design. So as a historian and a golfer out here, you know, what are your takeaways from playing Donald Ross's design? Like, what do you think he did really well here that you can still feel today when you play the course. So I've been fortunate to play a few Ross courses and some of the things that are takeaways are the short walks from greens to tees. I think that our golf course has that and it still has that. And we'll get into this later, but that's one of the geniuses of Andrew Green. How do you take a golf course that Ross originally had at 6,200 yards and make it 7,800 yards but still have it be a short walk for the members. And he did that. But um, you, you do feel that with this course. You feel some of the turtleback greens, um, you know, some of the, uh, the humps in the, in the greens and all that. Some of the bunkering as well, the cross bunkering. We always hear about Ross and the cross bunkering in the fairways, uh, which Tilling has touched up some of those later. But um, you still see some of those elements. Yeah, it's a beautiful course. We played it earlier. Uh, it definitely took its pound of flesh from me. Um, there is zero doubt if the USGA is hearing, uh, here, listening, sorry, there is zero doubt if the USGA is listening right now that this course could hold a U.S. Open 
fairly easily. The rough destroyed me. I know we're getting ready for the Solheim Cup. Um, good luck, ladies. Uh, it's no pushover. Um, it is, I mean, it's got teeth. It really does. Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, you think all the trees that we've taken down in the last decade, we've probably taken down over 4,000 trees. Um, so you can you could spray it a little bit, but the way the green complexes are, uh, the way the approaches are, it's very firm, it's very fast, and the rough is rough. Uh, some of the things, and I don't want to get in, it's a different podcast that we can do on, sure, on, absolutely. on, on you know, green maintenance and all that stuff, but uh, we've done some things uh, with the rough as well to make that uniform and to make it tough. Yeah. So Ross's design, it's an overwhelming success from the beginning. I mean, it, USGA latches on and says, Let's, we're going to hold the 1920 US Open here at Inverness. And it's a historic event. Uh, for the first time since 1913 playoff, as we mentioned, Ted Ray and Harry Varden returned to the United States to compete for our national open. The field was equally spectacular. Um, nine of the top 10 finishers were major championship winners by the end of their career. Names like Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen, Chick Evans, Gene Sarazen, Tommy Armour, Jim Barnes, Ted Ray, and Harry Varden. Uh, I think arguably... It's the best field in the history of the U.S. Open until that point. I don't even think there's a debate on that. It was that great. What can you share about this pivotal Open? Well, there's a lot of things to share about it, and uh, I'll probably start with uh, a fun story that a lot of people don't know. We actually lost the greens oh, I a, did, couple, I didn't months, know that. a yeah. couple months before the 20 Open. E.J. Marshall was our greens chairman, and E.J., uh, ran one of the uh, attorney offices here in Toledo. And so he started a correspondence that included the USGA and the Department of Agriculture to find out how to fix this disease that they had on their greens. And what came from all of this correspondence, and we have it all, it's like 90 telegrams, is you know the USDA deciding we need to have a green section where what we they they fixed the greens they solved the problem with the help of the department of agriculture and they said we need to have this archived for future tournaments so that if we have any other issues at other future host sites that we can draw upon this information this shared information so that we can uh you know fix you don't have to reinvent the the wheel yeah exactly so in november of 1920 after that august open the usga started the green section and so it was E.J. Marshall, the Toledo end, that helped put that together. And as a matter of fact, we just dedicated John Zimmers, our current superintendent, his offices. We named it the E.J. Marshall Building, and we brought the USGA up, and we did a whole dedication. There's oh, a so cool. That we did, which is so pretty cool. cool. So that's a fun sort of pre-story to the Open. Getting into the Open, uh, a lot of firsts. So Bobby Jones playing in his first. Yeah, first U.S. Uh, Open. Gene Sarazen played in his first. Tommy Armour played in his first that year. Uh, Harry Varden played in his last. Uh, Ted Ray was the oldest open winner uh, for, I don't know, 50-some-odd years. Yeah. Was it Raymond Floyd, maybe? Exactly. Surplanted him? Yeah. That's exactly right. So a lot of those neat stories. One of the ones that we like to tell, and this is one that Bobby Jones used to tell up until his death, he was playing in a practice round with none other than his idol, Harry Varden. And they're coming up to the seventh hole, and Harry Varden basically has said nothing to Bobby Jones and Bobby's very nervous and so he's hitting his approach shot into the old dogleg seven which had a pretty severe front to back uh, a big grade up and then it just falls off at the back and Bobby skulls his chip 
And it goes I did off that, the by the way, Bobby, if you're listening from heaven. <laughs> I did that a couple times today. I get it. Yeah. It's easy to do at Inverness. So he puts it in the back bunker. He chips on two putts, makes a bogey, and he walks over to the par 3-8, a little nervous, and he's like, I got to break the ice. So he looks over at Harry Varden, and he said, Mr. Varden, have you ever seen such a poorly struck shot? And Harry looks at him and says, no. <laughs> and, that, he, that, and Bobby used to laugh telling that story, but that was the extent of the conversation between... Uh, kind of like Ben Hoganite, right? I mean, oh, it's almost yeah. Ben Hogan just being brief. He's just like, no. So that's that's one of the great stories that came from that. You know, um, a lot of people talk about Harry Varden and the collapse. Oh, I mean, that's brutal of it. Right. So he um, basically, you know, bogeyed or double bogeyed the last several holes. He was up five strokes with five holes to play to win the U.S. Open again. And he loses by a stroke to Ted. He was 50 years old. I mean, if we're talking about thinking about Phil Mickelson now, 50 year old Harry Varden. Five up, five to play, and, and how did that go down? So there's a, you know, a lot of writers like Herbert Warren Wynn write about this storm that comes off of Lake Erie from the Northeast. Harry Varden was quoted as saying, it's the worst weather he ever had played in. And this guy came from Jersey off yeah. of England, right? So he'd seen some weather. Ted Ray was already in the clubhouse with 295. Yeah, that's what people don't recognize, right? It's not the current format where... The leaders of the tournament are playing together, and the last one's out. It was scattered. Right. That's correct. So Ted Ray was already in. He got the benefit of getting pretty decent weather. So Varden's playing in this horrible weather, and it came up about the 12th or 13th hole. And so he famously you know, had all of those poor holes coming in and lost by a stroke. And one of the holes that he had a poor uh, showing was on 17, where he puts it in the water. And some of our members have heard this story, and they say, what water on 17? But that was filled in later by Tillinghast in 1930 before the 31. And you can so, kind of see the indentation, and you could see the continuation of where that would have gone through. Yeah, absolutely. Which begs the question, like, what kind of foozled shot, that's what they used to call the bad shot, what kind of foozled shot would have hit that creek? Because it's... 50 yards-ish before that green, where it would have been? So if you think about which way Varden was facing, he was facing to the north, hitting that shot into 17. So he's hitting into a dead wind. And so I'm sure it ballooned up and just probably went backwards and into the water. I had one of those too, so I feel his pain as well. (laughs) A lot of people like to talk about Ted Ray and his pipe going out uh, over his last putt on 18. And so he's stepping over this 9 or 10 footer which ended up becoming the winning putt, and his pipe went out. And so he steps off the putt, and he relights his putt, there's his, yeah. his pipe, and then, you know, puff, puff, smoke, smoke, gets it lit, stands right over it, and bangs it in. That's so cool, yeah, right? That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So he With was, he was quite the character. I mean, these guys wearing their hats and their long jackets, and he was a big guy. He was a big guy, and yeah. he was a lasher. Yes. I mean, like the photos you have, you can see the fabric on his jacket, you know, almost flying into the wind as he whirls around. He put everything he had behind every ball. Yeah, he was um, what we would call today a bomber. So the, what really helped him in that 20 open was that dogleg left par four, number seven. And if you play the normal routing, it's about a 310-yard hole. But if you cut the corner, and you can hit a 250-yard drive, which is just a bomb back then. And that's what he was able to do, and he was able to put his drives to the front of the green and make birdie in all four rounds. That's unbelievable, and right? Yeah, just, yeah. He just pounded the ball. And when he was on, he's hard to beat. When he was off, he was off the planet with the shots, much like 
I, I think the modern day equivalent, probably not now, you know, it's a little past his prime would be the John Daly, right? Where he just could hit it a mile. He was hitting it so much farther than a lot of the competitors, even in, you know, 1920. He was a marvel. I think you told, uh, tell that little story we were talking about. We both know it, but the story at Eastlake and Bobby Jones seeing them for the first time. Yeah, so I, I mean, think that kind of helps you. You know, Bobby watched um, Vard and Ray come in. I think they came in in 1900, 1913, and then again in 1920. So in 1913, Bobby was a young boy. He was 18 in 1920, right? So he's about 13 or whatever the you know math says there. But um, he was standing there watching in marvel at Ted Ray hitting these monster shots. But what he learned at the end of this exhibition match was even though Harry Varden didn't hit it as far, he was always in the fairway, he was always hitting the green, and he was always making par. So Bobby would look at his scorecard later and reflect upon, I see a lot of fours, and he was able to beat Ray, and he's able to beat a lot of people, maybe par's not so bad. So And that's he what took he would a, do. He took right? a lot, absolutely. He, he played the course, not the man. Exactly. That's, I mean, just I think that's really cool because it kind of fits right into that Ted Ray, you know, story of he's just bombing it out there. And unfortunately, Harry Varden looks like he's going to win the U.S. Open at the age of 50 and Mother Nature intervenes, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the movies that depicts this well is uh, The Greatest Game Ever Played, where it really shows how the Americans were tired of losing their Opens to the Brits. And in 1913, of course, Francis Wiemet wins, and McDermott gives that impassioned speech in the, in the locker room. Well, he was there in 1920 as well, and I don't know that he gave another impassioned speech, but Leo Daigle was the last of the Americans that had a chance to beat the Brits in 20. And a lot of people don't know this story, but Chick Evans had just finished his round, his last round, and he comes back out, looks at the leaderboard, sees that Leo is, is the one that has the chance to beat him. And he walks up to Leo as he's making the turn to play his last nine holes. He said, I'm going to caddy for you. And I know where the pins are. I know the reads. And I can help you win this thing. So Gene Sarazen tells a story. If you remember those wooden steps that you walk up to to get to 11 tee box. So you're looking down on 10 green. Yes. So Gene Sarazen tells a story of looking down on 10 green and hearing an argument. And it's Leo Daigle and Chick Evans, right, from the Evans Scholars, Chick Evans, um, arguing over the read of the putt. And needless to say, Leo missed the putt and famously did not win the 1920 so, Open. But he swapped out his caddy. He did. Wow. Yeah, Chick Evans. I know you, you can't even it imagine. It doesn't even sound like that's legal. Right. <laughs> right? But they did that back then. Yeah, and apparently he did that a few years prior and maybe an amateur. Yeah. He caddied for another player. He, and he finished one stroke back, right? Did he tie with Varden? Yes. Yeah. Unbelievable. I, I think another really cool story. I, it might be my favorite story of Inverness, which is pretty unfair to all the great stories of Inverness, is that Inverness Club broke a long-standing tradition in 1920 and how they treated the visiting professionals. Could you expand upon that? What might have been considered a radical change? So, I mean, we're really proud of this history because we were the first club in the United States to open its doors, and maybe even around the world, to open its doors right. yeah. to pros and amateurs, right? So during amateurs, tournament time. Yeah. During tournament time. Amateurs were treated pretty well, but the pros were not. And that's another thing that's depicted in another movie called Stroke of Genius about Bobby Jones, where Walter Hagen himself is outside one of those you know courses over in England, and and they won't let him in the locker room, and he has to change. Yeah, and that's out after in the 1920. Lot. Right. I mean, so you could almost argue that Inverness 
kind of lights the fire in Hagen that he should be treated like everybody else. And he, you know, you're right. He changes out in front of the, the clubhouse yeah. to prove a point. And he has all these lavish dinners that were perhaps better food than they were serving inside, you know, having a waiter or his, his chauffeur serve him, you know, in a, uh, in a, 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 you know, brief moment of, of luxury in this limo. But you could argue that that doesn't happen, perhaps, without the 1920 U.S. Open. Right. So it was really SP that was a big part of that, and, and obviously the membership, too, that made the announcement to all the players, pros and amateurs alike, you can use our dining facilities, you can use our locker room, you're going to be treated like members this week. Whatever you need, you have it. And Hagen was blown away, as were a lot of the other players. I mean, yeah. And so Hagen was the one. They would, they would the have one. to change in like stables oh. if you had like you know horses on there. They would. Right. They'd have temporary changing stations. You'd have to change in the the caddy shed and put all your stuff on a hook. You know, and it, it was a hot mess. And Inverness changes all of that. It's just to me, I just think that's just so fitting. It's kind of a Midwest kind of ideal. Kind of we're all the same here. We're going to take care of you. That hospitality that you get, you know, out of Ohio. Yeah, I, I believe that's true. And I'm, I'm proud of that in my home state. And uh, I think that we were doing it back then. We obviously still do it today. And everybody sort of expects that all clubs do that nowadays. But it wasn't like that. So Hagen, as a thank you, he got all the players to donate uh, money, chip in. And they bought this grandfather clock, which still not only sits in our front hall, uh, but still keeps time. Prominently. And, yes. and it's surrounded by... What, the U.S. Amateur Trophy, the U.S. Open Trophy? What are the other trophies over on uh, the PGA Championship Trophy? And I can't remember. We have the U.S. Amateur, the Junior Amateur, the Senior. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. uh, Yeah, the Junior Amateur, the Senior, and then the uh, U.S. Open and PGA Championship. I just, that is just so We'll have to redo that one because I I, I can't fumble through that. Go ahead. You're going to have to re-edit that one. No, go ahead. Why don't you say it again? So the five trophies we have in our case are the U.S. Open, the U.S. Amateur, the Junior Amateur, the Senior Open, and uh, the PGA Championship, the Watermaker. Surrounding the clock. this grand grandfather clock that was donated by the PGA professionals and headed up by Walter Hagen. Yeah. So the inscription on the clock says, God measures men by what they are, not by what they in wealth possess. This vibrant message chimes afar the voice of Inverness. Well done. I mean, who wrote that? We got to find. There's no way Walter Hagen wrote that. We should find out. I wouldn't be surprised if SB wrote it because he was a bit of a wordsmith. Yeah. Um, he actually did a program for the 31 Open, and um, he's he has a way with his words, so it wouldn't surprise me. God knows, I love Walter Hagen. So he he came into the tournament as the defending champion. Um, the 1920 U.S. Open was tough as nails, but the year before in the U.S. Open, it was hosted by Brayburn at Brayburn. And Hagen won with the highest recorded score in relation to par in the history of the U.S. Open at plus 17. Ted Ray comes in 1920 with a score of, I mean, when you think about this now, it's really remarkable, plus 11, 11 over par. Inverness's teeth were clearly sharp when it hosted the 1931 U.S. Open with Billy Burke when he won with plus eight. What do you think, what challenges does it present to those players? What made it so, I felt them today, clearly, but what do you think it was about Inverness that made it such a difficult test in 1920 and 1931? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to hit the fairway, right? It starts with that. But it is pretty much what you see is what you get off the, off the tee. There aren't a lot of blind tee shots. 
it's the second shot course. And a lot of people talk about that with Ross courses. So you have to hit a quality shot into these greens. But I think the one thing that people talk about through the decades are, are how small our greens are. And, you know, Byron Nelson, I think, gave some advice to Paul Azinger in 93. They bumped into each other in the locker room before the start of the tournament. And Azinger said, you know, Mr. Nelson, do you have any advice that you could give me before the start of this tournament? You were out here for a couple of years as head pro. And Nelson said, well, I, you know, in his southern draw, he said, I suppose if you just aim for the middle of the green, uh, you should have about a 20-foot putt uh, to every pin. And Azinger said, that's exactly what I did. But I think that that held true back really? in 31, yeah. and I think it held true back in 20. You had to hit quality shots out in the fairway. You couldn't be messing around in the rough, and you had to hit a quality shot into those small greens. And there's a lot of undulation. There's some tough reads, and there's a lot of bunkers. I mean, we have 90 bunkers. Yeah, I mean, and they're dastardly. I mean, they are deep, and they are they can be quite penal if you're in them. Yes. I mean, they, I mean, they can take a full stroke, you know, where you have to you know hit out of them, and you've got another full stroke into the green. That definitely happened to me. Um, while many listeners may not be familiar with Billy Burke, who won the 1931 U.S. Open, two historical equipment uh, markers occurred during that Open. And one of them was really an innovation that I, that one struck me as much as anything. Can you go into maybe the clubs that Burke used and what made them a little different than some of the folks in the field? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're seeing, I think, still a lot of the hickory shafts, right? And uh, Burke was the first to ever win a tournament with steel shafts. So that was a first. And then the ball, the American ball, which I don't think lasted very long. You and I talked about this earlier. It was like maybe 1.68 inches or something like that. That was a... The yeah. first time that a ball of that size. Yeah, uh, won 1930, a uh, the decision, I think, um, I always joke about this that Bobby Jones came out on the lucky side of that draw, but they um, basically increased the size of the ball and they decreased the weight. And so for about a period of, it was less than a year, this ball was lambasted by the press and the, many of the players. It was called the balloon ball because it wouldn't hold up in the wind. If you hit it up in the wind, they, you know, they, basically overset it and said the ball would come flying back at you. And it was, I wouldn't say universally hated, but it was hated by a lot of folks. And so it was used in that U.S. Open. And ultimately what happened through some form of protest is that the USGA changed the ball to the ball that we have today, the current specifications of weight and size that we play today. So we have this weird little microcosm in the 1931 U.S. Open where they're using a ball that was never even used for a full year in golf history, you know, because the, the Brits didn't change, right? Over in Scotland, the RNA, they didn't come to the size ball until many decades later. So we have this like small window of time in 1931 where this ball exists, this balloon ball existed in time, which is, I think, equally fascinating. And how cool is it that it occurred here? God forbid they're playing in the wind coming off the lake and uh, with a balloon ball, right? Right. That much more difficult. And you wonder if that had anything to do with making this particular tournament the longest major championship history. I mean, 144 holes, uh, there's never going to be another one as long as that because the USGA changed the rules after that. Yeah. So any more takeaways from the 1931 US Open? Anything that sticks out to you? Well, I just think it's interesting that, you know, they, they had the 18 holes – the 18 holes, and then on the third day, on Saturday, they did the 36-hole final, and Von Elm and Burke are tied. And so they do the 36-hole 
playoff on Sunday, and they're still tied. And then they come back and do another 36-hole playoff, and it wasn't until, you know, basically on the last hole, Burke has a birdie and beats Von Elm. And, I mean, this is a 97-degree Toledo heat. Yeah. So these guys are just, I mean, exhausted. Yeah, I don't know this. I mean, that's is that the longest tournament for a U.S. Open championship? It's the longest major for holes ever played. Yeah. in golf history. It's crazy. 144 holes. Here at Inverness. Here at Inverness. Man, I can't even imagine. Three, I'm, I'm exhausted from 18 holes today. In 90 plus <laughs> You go two loops heat. on that in that heat? And we have some great pictures of the two of them dousing each other with buckets of water. That's so funny because they were just out of it, just exhausted oh, from yeah. it too. And Burke liked to smoke a cigar, so hopefully he didn't get his cigar wet. <laughs> <laughs> so there must be something about Inverness that attracts equipment technology early adopters. In 1957, U.S. Open winner Dick Mayer played with special shafts. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. Prior to doing the research, I had no idea this. It was a shaft made here in Toledo. Tell us a little bit about that, because, I mean, that's 1957. Right. Predates, you know, fiber, or it predates graphite shafts. Yeah, fiberglass. So the first winner with fiberglass shafts, which were made here in Toledo. So the famous Owens Corning Company, and yeah. And they didn't take off. I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen fiberglass shafts. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't, I don't, I've never seen them from 1957. So the rarity of that, it's, it's almost funny that maybe that wasn't made so much of a big deal in the press. Cause you know, it's usually someone wins and then you have all these adopters saying, oh, you know, so-and-so is using graphite shafts. So let's start using graphite shafts. And I, up until researching for this, I had no idea. No that, idea. And that was an interesting tournament because it's, it's basically on the heels of our Inverness Invitational. We held that from 30, uh, 1935 to 1953. And a couple years later, we have the 57. And two guys that won the Inverness Invitational four times were Ben Hogan and Jimmy Demerit. And Jimmy actually came runner-up, right, with Middlecoff yeah. in that 57 against Dick Mayer. Uh, but he really had a good shot to win it, and he knew the course. A lot of these guys knew the course, but Dick Mayer never played in the Inverness Invitationals. And Hogan, if I remember right, withdrew. He did. Right? Yep. Back problems? Was that what it was? I can't... That's what the books say? Yeah. Ooh. Yep. Do we have some insider information there? <sighs> you know, I've heard some of the um, the older members that were around at that time uh, that, uh, that said that Hogan... Um, just he just wasn't feeling he wasn't hitting it very well and and you hate to say that um but he was watching him hit balls on the range this particular member and and he, I, i'm sure it had to do with the back problem so maybe those sure those two things sure. go simultaneous but uh and it's either post, way he didn't po- you know it's a clearly post you know the injury and everything leg issues and all that and unbelievable though. yeah for sure but i mean he was a favorite leading up to it i mean well and let's go into why i mean you were talking about the four ball and and I was it the 18th hole that he played, and there was another the par three. Yeah, Jimmy Demerit would say that you know Ben Hogan birdied the 18th hole every single time he played it in those four ball matches in the Inverness Invitational, and he only parred the par three 13 once and birdied it every other time he played it, That's which is funny. just yeah, it's just incredible. So those guys winning it four times. And Demerit used to say, you know, I, I hold those up with my Masters, my three Masters championships. That's how important those were to me because we're playing the best, you know, other 14 players in the world at the time. And the purse for the Inverness Invitational 
was the biggest purse outside of a major championship. And the players used to talk about they never had to touch their pocketbooks when they came to Toledo. Everything Everyone was took covered. care of them. That's cool. Yep, the hotel, the food, the whole nine yards. Now, who was taking care of that? Was it Inver- the members of Inverness? So once again, kind of going back to the 1920 tradition, taking care of those who come to the club. Absolutely. And that, that, that tradition, I know we're, I'm, this is jumping way forward, but you know we're talking about the hospitality of Inverness. If you could, and if you can't, that's fine too. But talk about uh, maybe the junior amateur that you have. I know this is jumping way into the future, but the hospitality and how you went out of your way to treat those junior amateurs to make them feel welcome. Cause you know, that's recent golf history, but I really thought that was really special. What you get, what you folks did. Yeah. So a couple of us on the committee, the historical committee and the junior amateur committee went out to Baltus Rawl for the host site in 18 for the junior amateur. And Mr. Wolf was the uh, historian at Baltus Rawl. We met with him and we asked him, how are you sharing your history with your patrons and the families and the players that come through. And he said, you know, we have these ambassadors that are in special shirts. There's about 10 of them that are sprinkled around the clubhouse. So if people have questions or, you know, want to know who's in this picture or whatever the case might be, that these ambassadors are there to answer those questions. And so when we came back, we thought, well, let's take that a step further and let's have all the players and their families come through the front door, right? The same spot. There'll be 20 ambassadors waiting for them to take them to registration and then to take them to the locker room where they ultimately get dropped off. But on the way, that path in our clubhouse happens to be a sort of a little mini history tour. And you walk by the grandfather clock, you walk by several of the different prints on the wall that tell the story through the years. And so we put a PowerPoint together and trained our 20 ambassadors to memorize this PowerPoint with these little bullet points of each of the different sort of stops on the way, but we wanted to make it about seven minutes. And the reason we wanted to make it at least seven minutes is because when they these players come to registration, they have their photo taken. And so by the time the seven-minute tour is done and they get dropped off to their locker room, the photo is already in a frame on their locker, which just blew these players away. Oh, absolutely. So basically within the first 10 minutes of coming to Inverness Club, they go through registration, have sort of a mini history lesson of what actually has happened here on our grounds, which is pretty special. And then they come in this locker room, which is ping pong and video games and cotton candy machine. And then they go to their locker and there's their picture that was just taken seven minutes or 10 minutes prior that's in a frame. And then they open their locker and there's a letter from Jack Nicholas himself signed by him saying, welcome to the junior amateur. This is a big moment in your life. And so what we're really proud of is the USGA does a um, sort of exit survey to the players and we had the highest rating of any junior amateur in their history, 50-plus year history of junior, junior amateurs. So we're very proud of that. That's so, and if you could tell the story about the champion and the frame, I just think that's such a cool – I mean, just it's, it's, it's over-the-top hospitality, but also enriching the winner in this tradition and doing it immediately. I just thought that was so cool. Yeah, so Preston – you know, hit that famous wedge shot on 17, which would have been the 35th hole against Bo Jin. And he puts it to maybe about eight or 10 feet. He makes the birdie putt. Bo Jin makes par. And so Preston closes him out. So the trophy's there. We do the hoisting the trophy. And one of the gals in our shop, our pro shop, Kayla, takes the photograph of Preston with the trophy. So Kayla sends that photo digitally to Jack Karen on our historical committee. 
Jack's at home. He has all the bells and whistles and neat printers that he can print these things out to poster size with a lot of clarity. And he prints off two copies and brings that back to the clubhouse. So that's back on property within about 15 minutes. Meanwhile, Preston comes in, he does a few interviews, and then he comes into the clubhouse to sign, you know, head covers and uh, booklets and other kinds of things that we want him to sign. And we put the two posters in front of him, and he looks at him and he says, Of him with the trophy. He goes, This this picture was just taken like 15 (laughs) minutes ago. And we said, I know, but we, we work fast here at Inverness. So he signs both of them. We take one of the copies and we put it in our archives, but the other copy. We bring upstairs into the room that we're in right now, the governor's room, and we have a frame already ready. We put it in the frame, and we put it down in our champion's hallway. Our champion's hallway, which is just a long hallway of all the different championships that we had, the four U.S. Opens, the two PGA championships, the one U.S. Amateur, the two NCAA championships, right? The two senior Opens, and now the junior amateur. Photos of all those champions all on those both champions. sides of the wall. Yeah. And... When Preston, about 35 minutes after walking off a of 17, come, we bring him into the champion's hallway and we say, we, want, we have something we want to show you. And we brought him in front of that framed picture that he had already signed too. Crazy. Yeah. And we took his photo in front of that. So he was just blown away. And I sent him the picture and he just loved it. He couldn't believe it. I mean, I just it's a personal touch that goes a long way. Now let's rewind a little bit back because we're talking about amateurs to the 1957 Open, uh, U.S. Open. Um, it also represented the first U.S. Open for a gentleman for Ohio that came to play. And you could maybe die. I think he did something with his golf career. He did. So Jack Nicholas, who we're talking about, tells a funny story. He said, you know, I played my first major championship, the U.S. Open. I was 17 years old in Toledo, Ohio at the Inverness Club. And on the first hole, I parred it. The second hole, I birdied it. And so then I see my name on the leaderboard. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is pretty cool. Jack goes on, tells a story of how he proceeded to shoot an 80 on that day. Comes back the next day, he shoots another 80, and he misses the cut. And he has to watch the rest of the spectator with the rest of the spectators. But uh, that was his first uh, major championship uh, experience, and it was in Toledo at Inverness. He did okay, right? I mean, he ended up doing all right with his career. I think he learned from that. That's right. It starts here. That's right. right? It's like Bobby Jones at Marion. Yeah. Right? It starts his career there and ends his career. So the, the night, fast forward, 1979, 1979 U.S. Open marked one of Hale Irwin's three U.S. Open tiles. But what's weird is the headlines really came out about a certain tree, kind of a famous tree. And, and maybe if you could tell the story about a tree, right? Of all the things you talk about in a U.S. Open, rarely does a tree come to play. Tell us about the tree. So we've talked a lot about firsts, you know, happening here at Inverness Club, and we're the first... And really, the only golf course that was altered after the start of play in a major championship history. So, the first day, on Thursday of the tournament, Lon Hinkle is playing with Chichi Rodriguez and Greg Norman. And they come off of the par 4-7 and come upon the new Fazio par 5-8. And Chichi Rodriguez walks all the way out into the fairway of 17, which is the adjacent fairway to the par 5-8. And he walks like all the way out, 200 yards. And to the point where Greg Norman and Lon Hinkle are like, what is, what is he doing? And as he starts walking back to the 8T box, Lon Hinkle said, oh, I, th- I think I have an idea of what he's doing. So Chi-Chi comes back and he said, well, I don't know about you boys, but I know which routing I'm going to go. And Lon Hinkle had honors. So Lon said, I, I think I'm going to do the same. So Lon teed it up first. 
This now, is, is this Thursday? This is Thursday. Yeah. So, you know, obviously Friday morning at 5.30 a.m., they plant this uh, spruce tree, yeah. which is about but 25 first, he, foot tall. But first, he hits it down into the he other does. fairway. And what, what does that do for him? Like, why? what was the advantage? So, Lon teed it up first. He plays down 17 fairway, okay, and is able to hit a one iron into that green and two putt for birdie. And it actually puts him in a tie for the lead. He shoots a 70 on day one. Wow. Okay. So there is something to sort of cutting the, the corner off of that hole by playing it down 17. And the USGA was furious, I think. And I, I would assume because they ordered a tree immediately and had it planted at 530 in the morning uh, on Friday, day two of it, right before the start of the tournament. I mean, can you imagine you're playing this hole in the US Open and you play your first round and you come back, and the next day there's a tree there. I, I mean, I, it's really it's a fascinating piece of history, isn't it? It is, and we have a fun picture of Lon playing his tee shot on day two over that tree. Oh, so <laughs> over, they plant the tree over his uh, what became the Hinkle was tree. Was he successful at hitting that shot? He was. Yeah. So they didn't get enough big enough tree. They they really didn't. But I mean, if you look at the picture, it's not it's not where I would want to go with my tee shot. Sure. Certainly. So there's he enough just, trouble. He probably there. wanted to just prove a point. He probably like, did. You're gonna. It's kind of like Jaws. You're gonna need a bigger boats. You're gonna need a bigger tree. Right. Right. That's just. I mean, and then the tree no longer exists. Right. It, sadly, it came down in March of uh, last year. And so what we did was uh, we we had a big rainstorm and it sort of got upended. It was one of those weird March snow rainstorms and. The ground got all soft and it fell over. The joke is that you know maybe Zimmers like you know watered the the ground and pushed it over, but we just teased Zimmers on that. So uh, we cut it up into pieces, and uh, as a matter of fact, um, we're gonna have a, a slice of it hopefully in a shadow box here soon oh, that's so in cool. the clubhouse. And then yeah. we made some you know drink coasters and things like that. And gave one to the United States Golf Association Museum. We did, correct? yeah. We presented one in a shadow box to them last October. For that's their, so for their cool. museum in Far yeah. Hills. I, I just think that's cool when clubs um, recognize the specific history of things that nobody, you know, my, I mean, it could have very well come down and gone through a, you know, wood chopper and the things just disintegrated. But you folks had the foresight to say, you know, this means something, which is really cool. And yeah. I have a little bit of the tree right in front of me that you gave me. That's right. right. Yeah. So cool. Enjoy those coasters. That's going. That's going up. I'm telling you, folks. When you see a photo of my uh, golfers in the future, one of the uh, part of the Hinkle tree will be on the wall. I don't know how I'm going to fasten it up there, but it's just, it's too cool. It's too cool. Hinkle tree. Um, so let's fast forward. I'm going to jump into two. So we have the 1986 and 1993 PGA Championships. Two close calls for Greg Norman. I yeah. mean, he's right there. Maybe going a little bit into. Um, the 86 U.S. Open, and then one of the most iconic golf videos, golf films of all time, out of the bunker on 18. I mean, I, I think most golfers, if you've watched any amount of golf or you're watching the Golf Channel or, heck, if you see a preview of the U.S. Open, sees a bunker shot, I, I don't know how many realize that's Inverness. Well, the golf course looked a lot different, and they recently had the 86 and 93 PGAs on Golf Channel, like within the last couple months. And so, of course, my phone's blowing up with texts, you know, about, how, you know, can you believe how different the golf course looks? And basically, it looks like a tree farm, and all these holes are surrounded by trees, right? 
uh, shoots, as they talk about, all yeah. the tea and all that. Uh, but certainly, um, it still had teeth, although the scores were now starting to, you know, break par. Um, you know, before the 86, the four U.S. Opens that we had prior to that, uh, no winner had ever broken par before. And so these players are putting some really low scores. For instance, Bob Tway, uh, who ended up waiting in 86 in the famous bunker shot, uh, he posted uh, a 64 uh, on day two, and that was close to the, the course record uh, of a 63. Um, but uh, Greg Norman, I mean, and he loved the golf course. He's on record of talking about how he, he really liked it, and he had these big leads, and literally in 86 and 93, he, he blew both of those. So one of the straightest drivers in the history of the game. And he really was. And 86 was a, was a big year because of course he won the British open, but then he came runner up in the masters, the PGA and the U S open in that year. So mm. unbelievable. Heart grand point. grand slam of runner ups. Absolutely. Um, I, I, Louis Oosthuizen has done the same. Unfortunately, Louis, gosh, we just saw him again, right in the hunt this week or the past week. And again, kind of didn't quite get it done, but Hey, that's golf, right? Absolutely. But, you know, Bob Tway played pretty steady the whole way through and he was there and he made that incredible shot on 18. He, uh, I think, hit a four iron off the tee uh, and got in some trouble and put in that front right bunker. Uh, But uh, Greg Norman hit his shot onto the green on 18, but it spun it back into the fringe. And then he has to watch as Bob Tway actually makes that bunker shot. Now Norman has to make make that, that putt off the fringe. And of course, you know, missed it. Uh, I mean, I just can't imagine how Norman felt about that. I mean, anybody winning on a shot like that, you know, it's funny because you talk about you know the the greatest golf shots in history and um, or even the history of the U.S. Open. That one doesn't get enough credit. How many folks win with holding out a shot like that to clinch it? I mean, phenomenal. Yeah, just, just phenomenal another history. you know special chapter in our in our history. And then you know in '93. You know, Azinger playing really well down the stretch. He birdies 17, uh, almost birdies 18, and Norman almost birdied it as well. So they're tied. They play 18 again. They both par it again, and then they go to 10. And on the 10th hole, you know, Greg Norman, three putts. All he had to do was two putt. Yeah. And, it, and just another heartbreaker. And he lipped it out. And I had some friends that were there at the time, and, you know, they, they said there were some, some tears shed. Uh, it's just, I just can't so imagine. many close I calls. I mean, fortunately, he won majors, right? But I mean, so many close calls for him. Yeah, it's. I. I, I don't think a lot of maybe today's youth probably don't realize how great of a player Greg Norman was in his prime. Yeah, it, it may not be reflected in the grand total of majors that he was in, but man, he was there, and seemingly all of them. I mean, a lot, everyone remembers the Masters collapse, but there were so many other stories of heartbreak. Um, you know, fortunately he won, right? I mean, it's, it's not all sad. Right. I know we focus on, sometimes as a society, we focus on the bad ones, but. He did all right. I mean, hey, if you're going to get beat by a bunker shot holding out, you know, what can you do? That's, you know, that's the golf god saying this one's not you to be yours, right? That's right. Well, let's move away from the majors and focus on two notable figures of Inverness's amazing history. Uh, Let's start with Byron Nelson. How is Lord Byron connected with the Inverness Club. So Byron Nelson in 1939 signs the contract to become our head professional. And it's within two weeks of his U.S. Open win, right? Uh, 
So he signs the contract, and he he, he referenced this as you know signing to a, a major club like Inverness gave him the confidence to go out there and win in a major championship. And he'd won before, but I mean, he does say that about the 39 U.S. Open. And he beats another gentleman for the job, which we have the letter. And that letter starts, Dear Mr. Hogan. Oh, wow. So two guys that come out of the same caddy yard outside Fort Worth, Texas, right, and come up through the ranks together, uh, and they're going for the same job in Toledo, Ohio, and, and Byron beat them out. Beat them again. Again. <laughs> cruel, cruel, cruel. So in 1940, he becomes our head professional. He stays in t- uh, for five years. He leaves at the end of 1944. And then, of course, goes on to have that amazing, amazing year. 1945 yeah. year where he wins 18, including 11 in a row. Uh, I think he shot an average of 68.3 that yeah. year, which uh, never was bested until Tiger Woods in 2000 when he did uh, 68.17. He won what? The only major in 1945 at, in Ohio, right? Moraine. Right. That's right. Uh, the PGA Championship. And then... You know, a year later, he retires, like the age of 35. Yeah. And it's, it's just hard to imagine. He said he wanted to save up enough money to buy a ranch and, and again, settle down. <laughs> I mean, Inverness is kind of part of that story, right? Yeah. I mean, it gave him not just the confidence, but also, you know, obviously, I mean, not the like a steady paycheck. You know, you get money and that gives you the confidence to, you know, go hard at, at, on the tour, go hard at the majors, knowing that... You don't have to win to support your family when you're working in a club like Inverness. Yeah, there's a couple of things that were integral into sort of the story of Byron Nelson that we're a part of. And he talks about playing a game at Inverness where it was his best ball or his ball versus the best ball of three other players. And the three other players that he would typically play with would be the top players in the club. And we had some good players back then, certainly some quote unquote scratch players. And so he would play this game of his ball versus the best ball of the other three and then go out on the tour, and he would talk about how the tour seemed a little bit easier than the game he was playing at Inverness. And at Inverness, I mean, it's a very, as you know, challenging golf course and um, a really great test. And he talked about the sidehill lies, the downhill lies, the uphill lies, and, and all of those different things, these different shots that he had to learn. And so he would take that onto the tour, and, and it really helped hone his craft. That's interesting. It's it's not the same, but it's almost eerily similar to um, Tiger Woods. I, I heard this. I, I can't verify it, but I've, I heard that he used to prepare for the U.S. Open by playing two balls worst ball. So he'd play two balls of his own, and he had to take the score of the worst ball. So if you hit a 300-yard drive and your next one is a squiggly little 250 that hooks – you know, against a fence, you're playing the one against the fence. And if you make a 10 footer, you know, you have to, you know, make it again, essentially, because it's the worst one. And he would shoot in these practice rounds in the sixties. It's similar to this, right? He's playing three players, three of the best players at the club, trying to beat the better ball of the three. I, I mean, it's, I mean, unbelievable talent, unbelievable talent, but Inverness is, you know, really amazing because you have this, um, you have this, Obviously, Dynamo amateur golfer coming up in the ranks. Uh, it was a member here, Frank Stranahan. Maybe yeah. tell a little bit of story about you know the Toledo strongman who this is his home club. There's a lot of fun stories about Stranahan, and there's it might even be its own podcast. But R.A. Stranahan, Frank's dad, you know, was big part of starting Champion Spark Plug. Champion Spark Plug, you know, most of the cars in the United States had a spark plug in them that was from Champion. So very, very wealthy family. 
And in 1940, uh, Frank was 18 and wins the club championship here and then goes on to become obviously an amazing amateur. He won two uh, British Ams. He came runner-up in two different British Opens. So clearly, he had I believe the means. 1953. Wasn't he yeah. runner-up to Hogan's, right? Yeah. He was in Carnoustie. Yeah. And uh, he played at Portrush as well and came runner-up there. Uh, and they talked about that a couple of years ago. But he obviously had the means to travel and go overseas and do that before a lot of the players, a lot of the Americans were doing that. And he came runner-up in the Masters. He had four low ams in the Masters. So, I mean, he clearly had the game. He was an amazing player. He won several times as an amateur on the tour and then a couple times when he went pro in 1954. Yeah, I think a really cool story about him that I think is overlooked because I think we look at post-World War II, uh, specifically the Open Championship, and we think of Sam Snead uh, coming over right after the war and winning uh, and, and, you know, basically, you know, saying some unkind things, perhaps, of the old course at St. Andrews. Uh, and then you have, of course, 1953 with Ben Hogan. But there are many folks within the RNA, there are many folks uh, that are overseas golf historians who believe that Frank Stranahan played a major role in saving the Open Championship. I mean, in post-World War II, uh, you know, everyone was broke. It was a Great Depression over there. I mean, they put all their money in the war effort. It was... You know, they were deep in their pockets. And the only consistent American who made that strip was Frank Stranahan. And it's said that Frank Stranahan, you know, talked to Sneed and he talked to Hogan. He was friends with these people and literally was in their ear convincing them that they had to come over and play this open championship, that you wouldn't be a great player unless you played in the open championship. And he was that one consistent theme through all those years. Clearly he had the means, right? I mean, and he wasn't taking a check. I mean, it was 100 pounds, if you want, or 200 pounds. It wasn't a lot of money. You lost money on that trip. But, you know, his belief in the British amateur, his belief in the open, he was a consistent American theme through those troubled times that helped convince others to make it, which I think is, I, to me, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. And, you know, a lot of people talk about Arnold Palmer being the big ambassador yeah. that sort of changed the the face of the open and the, and the face of the Ryder Cups. But... Uh, it was Frank Stranahan. He was going over there for the AM. He was going over for the Open. He was going over for the Walker Cups. Uh, we have some great photos in our archives of him at St. Andrews with the Walker Cup team that was led by their captain, Francis Wiemet, and um, you know, just some great history there. But you're right. He, was, he had very good relationship with those pros, uh, those top players, and they respected him, but he was um, very respectful to them as well. Uh, the press, I don't know that they entirely loved Frank Stranahan, um, he had a couple sort of nicknames like the Blonde Adonis, uh, Muscle Stranahan, uh, Toledo Strongman, Toledo Strongman. But um, you know the players behind, you know inside the ropes, he was very, very well respected and well. well I mean, he was Bryson DeChambeau before Bryson DeChambeau, right? right. I mean, bodybuilder, yeah, not no, just you know lifter, like bodybuilder. Nobody was lifting weights or doing the nutrition like Frank Stranahan. He was uh, a big marathon runner. Um, you know, he was very strict in his diet and what he ate. Uh, he didn't. He didn't drink. He didn't do any of those types of things. Uh, he, I think, enjoyed uh, females. Uh, yeah. But that's okay. He was very good looking. A little bit of a player. Uh, but one of the funny stories that somebody told me he he would have this joke where he'd get to a hotel and he'd have the bellhop try and carry his luggage to the room and he'd have his his weights in there and so the bellhop of of course couldn't lift the luggage. Yeah. And he'd laugh at that. 
You know, I, I heard this. I don't know if it's, I'm going off of memory, which is always dangerous, but I believe Gary Player once said that his push into fitness was influenced by Frank Stranahan. Frank Stranahan talking to him about, you know, fitness and flexibility and strength. And I mean, we all know, you know, how fit Gary Player is. He does feats of strength on the tour. Uh, But I, I think that's an interesting little model. And now, of course, you know, you know, club pros or these professionals have their own trainers and they have their own gyms in their house. And you could really look at that and say, Frank Stranahan had a huge impact on the professional game today. He was a forefather of, of that kind of thinking. Yeah, no question. He was a true, a lot of people true athlete. Thought, a lot of people thought if you added weight, it would ruin your game. And he really kind of proved that to be the opposite. But he was also, is it fair to say he was pretty cocky? Uh, I, I think he was. Like, uh, I think from everything him and I've Byron... Read, Right, like, maybe tell the story about how Frank's dad asked Byron about you know teaching his son. I think he calmed down his cockiness maybe later on in life. <laughs> but when he was when he was seventeen or eighteen, he um, he certainly thought he was one of the best golfers around. And so when Byron Nelson came to Toledo to be our head professional Inverness Club, you know R. A. Stranahan, his father, Frankie's father, would come into the pro shop and said, you know, Byron, I want you to give my son lessons. And weeks would go by, and Frank wouldn't get a lesson from Byron, and Ari Stranahan would come back in and say, "Pro, why are you not, why are you not giving my son lessons?" And Byron Nelson would say, well, "With all due respect, Mr. Stranahan, your son doesn't think he needs a lesson from me." <laughs> but meanwhile, there was this chatter going back and forth between Frank and Byron Nelson, where Frank would come into the pro shop and always sort of egg on the pro and try and yeah, you know, goad him into a game. And famously, I want, yeah, I want you to tell the story that I knew first, and then tell the story that other people might not know because I thought that was equally as fascinating. So the book will tell you about this the eighteen hole match between Frank and Byron, and how did that come about? So you know, of course, Frankie coming in there and saying, "Come on, pro, let's get a game," and Byron sort of being fed up with that one day, and he said, "Fine, I'll meet you on the first tee." My best, you know, my ball versus the best ball of you and your two buddies. I'll see you on the first tee. And so they had that 18 0 match, and Byron not only proceeded to beat the best ball of Frank and his two buddies, and his buddies were good players too. They might not have been Frank Stranahan, but they were good players. But Byron also shot the course record, which stands to this day of a 63. 63. 1940 with that equipment. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how that's possible. Joe over here. Shot, what, like a 74 today and misses it by 11 strokes. And Joe is on fire. That's Joe Arnold for everyone who can't see us. But, um, I mean, a 63 out there. You you play this course. You walk this course. You hit that shot. You you hit it in the rough. I know Vijay Singh has matched it, you know, over the years with modern technology, but it's an unfathomable score. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned Bob Toy having the 64 in the second round of the – of the 86 PGA, and then VJ had the 90. Uh, he 46 had a, years later. Right, in the 96 PGA. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. VJ shot a 63, so he tied it. But uh, incredible score. But the, but the story that, that isn't in the book, and we just learned this story, there's a, uh, a gentleman, sadly, that, that recently passed at about 95 years old, uh, Jim McGowan, who was a longtime member at Inverness Club, and we got him on video. Uh, we try to do that with a lot of our older members, and he told us the story of how he was in the caddy shack when Byron started as head pro. 
And within the first year of Byron being our head pro, he handpicked Jim McGowan to work in the pro shop and help sell shoes and other various things, uh, which was awesome. I mean, you know, Mr. McGowan was a teenager at that point, maybe 15 or 16 years old. But he told the story of one day Byron came into the shop very hot, very upset, which was very unusual because Byron Nelson was a gentleman. And I think there was some rumor going around the golf course that Frank Stranahan and Byron Nelson were in a, in a match together. And it was only nine holes. But Byron came in after that nine holes with a club in his hand and sort of breezed by everybody in the pro shop, fuming, went to the back of the pro shop, and there's a grinder back there. And he took the club and put it on the grinder there's sparks flying so in the back room you really can't see byron but you see these sparks flying you know from the room into the pro shop and everybody in the pro shop is just mortified and he before he steps out of the room he takes the club snaps it over his knee throws it in the trash can and then kind of dusts his hands off walks in the middle of pro shop and looks at everybody with a smile and says okay what are we selling today and everybody knew that he he lost the nine hole match to Frank, but it was later that he, there was a rematch of 18 holes. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I love all of that. Right. You got to love him. You know, he said famously, I think after beating him with a 63 in the 18 hole, uh, match, you know, I never had much trouble from young Stranahan again. Right. But that story that predates it, the nine holer, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine Lord Byron coming and grinding up a club out of anger and snapping it over his knee. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I think such was probably, you know, the, I don't know if you call arrogance. I mean, maybe just the self-belief of Stranahan that I'm, I'm better than you. You know, I don't care how many majors you've won. I, I can take you. And then you did it for nine holes. Couldn't do it for 18 apparently, but did it for nine. Yeah. And I suppose you need that kind of confidence, especially if you're going to go on the tour and play against these you guys. You do. Absolutely. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I had a story. I've shared this before on the podcast, uh, but I, I went to... Uh, a dinner with Jack Nicholas, and uh, I think I can say this, but I was with a bunch of lawyers, and they were just asking him the dumbest questions. Uh, I hate that. I hate to say that, but I, I, I just don't think that you know the lawyers knew much about golf. And they were asking, you know, one of the questions was, um, "Hey, Jack, um, you know, you versus Tiger Woods in your prime, back nine on Sunday at the Masters, who wins? And I'm just like rolling my eyes like, oh my God, you're standing in front of, if not the greatest golfer, one of the greatest golfers of all time, and this is the best question you have. And he says, without like a blink of the eye, he goes, oh, I'd beat him like a drum. And I was like, whoa, he never would have said that on the golf channel. You know what I mean? Like never. And then there was like this long pause and Jack says, well, you know what? If you ask that same question of Tiger, he'd say the same thing. That's the mentality of a champion. That's the difference between Tiger and Phil. Those were his words, Tiger and Phil at the time, which is that Tiger goes in there and says, I don't care if I'm coming in with my Z game. I'm going to find a way to beat you. It doesn't have to be my week. Every week's my week. And I think that's what it takes. I think if, whether you're Stranahan or whether you're Nelson or an all-time great, I think you have to have that kind of arrogance. Joe has that arrogance. I clearly do not. Just kidding, Joe. <laughs> he played great today. That may or may not be edited out. I think I'm going to keep it in there, Joe. You're going to be famous uh, or infamous. 
Um, let's fast forward. So, or maybe, maybe it's not really a fast forward. Maybe just let's, let's put the focus, but let's put the spotlight on the course itself. Uh, like many classic courses, you know, in the United States, the course has changed over the decades. I, I know you had a, a program that added trees over the years. You, in your words, became kind of a tree farm. Um, you've had quite a few architects touch Inverness, which is really an impressive list. Uh, from Nichols to Ross, Tillinghast to Dick Wilson, you had George and Tom Fazio, Arthur Hills, and then finally, you know, most recently, Andrew Green. Could you go through some of that progression of architects? And if you can, talk a little bit about how they touched the course. Because some of them were very light. You know, some were obviously Nichols designing nine, Nichols doing 18 with, with help. Uh, you know, in 1916, Donald Ross coming in and redoing it. And then you have a lot of people coming in and doing a little bit of work and then sometimes changing holes. It may be touch on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the theme with all of that is um, if you take a look at each of the architects that came through, they came through before a major championship, right? So we didn't know in 1916 that we were going to get the 20 open, but we did. But Donna Ross doing this championship layout, taking our 18-hole golf course and making a championship layout, that was a huge renovation where he basically changed just about everything, okay? But then in 1930, we bring in Tillinghast, and we want to make the golf course a little bit longer because the technology is getting a little bit better and the ball's changing maybe a little bit. The players are getting better. And Tillinghast, um, you know, touching some of the bunkers, adding a few bunkers, deleting a few. He talked about the cross bunkering that, that Ross would do, which, you know, essentially would, would really only hurt the duffers, uh, as he called it. Um, but he filled in the creek in front of 17 green, which Varden put his ball into uh, in the 20 open. So that was filled in. So some of those changes, but I would say fairly light. And that was in 30 before the 31 open. And then in 56, Dick Wilson comes in again to lengthen the golf course, move some of the tee boxes, maybe uh, add a few bunkers here and there uh, to where it being appropriate or to, or to move some of the bunkering, if you will, to where landing spots might be to pinch some of the fairways uh, to make it harder, a harder test of golf. Because again, the equipment is getting better. Uh, the ball is getting better. The players are getting better. And then you get to, before the 79 open, uh, the Fazio is coming in. And that's and, more of the radical change, right? Yeah, that was a Go radical into that. change. Because, yeah. you know, Dick Wilson in 56 famously said, you know, anybody that changes or messes with this Rembrandt is crazy. Well, the Fazio's messed with it big time. <laughs> and, do, we, do we just call the Fazio's crazy? Not it, You didn't. I did not. No, no, no. I did Dick not. Dick Wilson might have. And I think the Fazios were onto something, you know. In so that's that's George and Tom Fazio. Correct. Yeah. Yep. So they realized that with the modern game and the equipment that the old Ross course had too much congestion on the golf course. Okay. Uh, balls flying over spectators' heads in a couple different uh, pinch spots where tee boxes and greens all kind of converged on each other. And a crowd in, say, 1920 or 1931 is much, much different size than yeah, a crowd much in lighter. the 70s yeah. or 80s. I mean, they're expecting 20,000 spectators in 1979. And so the Fazios, ironically, were only brought in to regrade one green. That was it. 17 green. Mm -hmm. Okay, to bring down the differential was, with modern green speeds, it was a little too fast. They needed to you know, bring, bring down the back a little bit. So 
you know, I think the, the great irony in all of these stories of all the different architects that came in, they were the ones that were brought in to do the least, but they actually came in and did the most. Yeah. And outside the most, of the whole course. Yeah. Outside of the whole course and probably the most, you know, controversial change that, that we ever uh, went into. And we were blessed with land that we bought in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s. Uh, which we never really did anything with. And as a matter of fact, and you and I didn't talk about this earlier, but we actually brought Pete Dye in in the 1960s to do a rendering of an additional nine holes. Oh, wow. And we Where would that the, have been? That would have been around 1968. No, I'm sorry, like on the course. So that would have been in that, that new land that we acquired, which is now where current three, okay. four, and five are. Okay. And where old Fazio three, five, and six were. Wow. Okay. So basically, uh, on a map to the southwest, okay? And we never obviously did anything with that. We didn't do those nine extra holes by Pete Dye, but we still have the drawing. That's you have the drawing for it? We that's do. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So Fazio's, uh, before leaving, said, you know, can we do another sort of write-up on what our recommendations would be? And so, of course, the Board of Governors said, sure, why not? And when they got the proposal, they were blown away that – it wasn't just regrading 17, but actually adding new holes and using that new land. It was four new holes. Is that it was right? Four new holes. Yep. Yeah. So they added the um, par five, eight. Uh, they added a par three, three, a par four, five, and a par three, six. So two threes, a four, and a five. And added a pond. And added a pond process, next yeah. to the par three, three. Yeah. And then they eliminated old six which is a par four, old seven, which is the famous dogleg par four that Ray cut the corner on in 20. The par three, eight, uh, which went back to the fence, uh, sort of in the northeast part of the, of the property. And then they eliminated that little par three, number 13, on the bluff off of uh, 18 Fairway. Amazing. I know. And that stood till 27. Well, before we go there, let's go. So we had one more architect kind of in the middle before we get Andrew Green, right? And that's Arthur Hills. Yeah, and he's and he's a big part of our history as well because Arthur Hills uniquely was a member of Inverness Club, right, and a Toledoan. So, and sadly, he just passed uh, two months ago, and uh, we just put um, uh, a piece up, a memorial uh, framed piece up, uh, talking about Art Hills. We just hung it this week, um, but he uh, was obviously a very well known. They they called him the hottest uh, architect in the nineties. And he helped touch up our golf course before the 2003 and 2011 Senior Opens. So essentially what he did was come in and sort of soften some of the Fazio uh, aspects to those holes that, that maybe made them a little too penal. Sure. And that the pros complained about in 79, 86, and 93. And then, so then we fast forward quite a bit, right? We get into, was it 2017? So 2016. Well, yeah, go, let's hired, go back before before you hire Andrew Green. Get me through that process. Like, when did the club or how did the club come to the realization that you know a renovation restoration was needed, and was the direction that you took was that in the minds or was that helped along, if you will, by Andrew Green's vision for the course? Yeah, I think that you know there are a lot of. Um folks out there that talk about golf course architecture, right? And about, um, you know, designs that are really, really good, stand the test of time and haven't really been touched a lot. And some that have been changed through the years and sort of lost their way. And I think that we were one of those golf courses that lost their way a little bit because we have, you know, I think, was it 
maybe Tom Doak in his confidential, his uh, golf course confidential guide, called our golf course schizophrenic. Yeah. And he's right, because you have maybe 13 or 14 Ross holes, and then you have these four Fazio holes that just don't really feel like the other holes. And we knew that, and we've known that for a couple decades. And it was just a matter of time before, at some point, we'll bring somebody in and hopefully change it. But we weren't sure who that was going to be. Did you, did you realize, I think, at that time, did you f- realize the scope that would needed to be done? Because, I mean, it was quite the undertaking. We, I don't know that we fully knew the scope of it, um, but when we brought a few architects in to do this renovation that we knew we wanted to do, uh, Andrew Green stood out above all others because essentially it, it was genius. It was like, uh, for my historical committee, it was like Christmas for us because it's like he can take all the blueprints of those old Ross holes and bring them back and just put them on a different part of the property and take an eraser to a lot of the Fazio aspects and some of those Fazio holes uh, that didn't quite fit. And it's nothing against Fazio because they are great holes, but they just didn't fit with the rest of it. And so to bring back those old Ross holes and to do it in a way that was somewhat manageable to our budget, I mean, we, we jumped all over that. So it was, um, it was a big deal to us, and we were really excited to get started on that. That was in 2016, and Andrew finished that uh, in 2017, and Golf Week called it the renovation of the year, which we were Yeah, we I mean, it definitely uh, springboards Andrew Green's career, too, and his vision, and obviously brings Inverness back into prominence, and not just history, but architecturally, that there's all the buzz about Inverness. I mean, you hear it everywhere from that restoration work. Some of that was detreeing the course or having a, a tree program. Some of that was um, restoring the Ross to the course. Some of it was, I, I guess you'd call it renovating the Ross to a course because you, you know you, know, you may no longer have a Ross hole, but how do you build a hole like Ross would with that property? Is that fair? No, it is fair. And, you know, I think Andrew Green's made a name for himself as sort of being uh, the Ross whisperer, where all the different projects that he has been awarded after Inverness have all been Ross courses, whether it's Congressional, Oak Hill, you know, Scioto, uh, soon to be Interlochen. Uh, so he was awesome with our committee, and he jumped into the history, all the old photographs and blueprints, and he taught us some stuff that we didn't know about our own golf course. That's how into the history he was. So it was fascinating to, to listen to that. So, and maybe if you could recall that story, I, I'm going to screw up the whole, I want to say it was three, where the green was moved 75 yards. Was it two? Two, the second hole. The green was moved 75 to 80 yards. And how precise he was in bringing that Ross green to a location that's 80 yards down the fairway. Yeah, and I think there's some there's some neat videos about how they do, um, you know, how they build greens now or green restoration. You know, I think Wingfoot put out a video there. Maybe Marion did as well. Um, but using laser technology where they can recreate a green uh, to the exactness within a tenth, tenth of an inch. And Andrew did that with, with number two green. So he was able to add 75 to 80 yards of length to number two, put a little slight dog leg in there and then recreate the green. And all the members, I'll tell you, none of them can tell the difference between the current green and and what it used to be. Right. And then I think there were other examples where, 
you know, I, I think anybody who is part of a or a member of a historic course, maybe they don't all realize it, but greens shrink over time. I mean, that's well known in restoration work that greens get smaller over the years, whether it's mowing patterns or, you know, just it's easier for this mower to take this turn than go over this hump and, you know, potentially scar the green because it takes more time. And it, part of that process was restoring the size of the greens. Yeah, I think that's one of them, which green was it that increased in size by 40%? Yeah, hole 12, which is the par 312. Uh, it used to be the par 33 back in, in the olden days, and that was increased by 40%, which is just a, kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a huge change. But when you play it, you don't really realize it. Um, you know, you think that the green still seems pretty small because all the Inverness greens seem pretty small. But yeah. no, he did have to uh, extend a lot of them out. Yeah, I tell you, I mean, not historical, just from an architectural standpoint, how Ross Green um, used the ridges on this course. There is a, a ridge that runs down, If I, correct me if I'm wrong, the first third of the course, that ridge that has all these greens built up and below it and into it. It's just phenomenal. It has four bridges, five bridges. Yeah, at least five go bridges. go across it. Yeah. I know that, you know, some of the folks I was playing with like other aspects of the course, but those four or five greens there, I think are just so spectacular. I mean, you have at least one that's built above the ridge where you have to hit your shot or, or cover the ridge. And then you have multiple, uh, greens that are built into the ridge. that are just so fascinating. God forbid, do not hit it long. I learned that lesson the hard way. It's just... Uh, which what hole is it? And I'm sorry, I should know this off the top of my head. It was the was that a par three that had the creek, and then I mentioned it almost felt like it had a Victorian steeplechase in front of the green, but it was really the ridge of the creek. Was that a par three or par four? I'm just thinking about my approach shot, or was that a par? I wonder if you're talking about the par four fifteen, which cascades into eighteen fairway. Is that the one you're talking about? It might. I'm just that hole was so stunningly beautiful. It was a par four. It was a par four. That's what it was. It was the par four. Um, I don't know. I just think there's true beauty in how this course is laid out through the rumpled fairways, through, you know, building these beautiful green sites into almost this canyon that runs through that has a creek running through it. Well, I think that's one of the special aspects of Inverness is that, you know, it's this this glaciated land that was formed, you know, like a million years ago, right? Yeah. And it has that sandy loam soil. None of it uh, is is man-made. And so I think, you know, SP, Jermaine, and, and the folks that came and sort of came upon this land, you know, uh, Eddie talked about it earlier, but, uh, you know, it's farm field, so the soil is awesome. Uh, but those land formations, I mean, you can't, you just can't duplicate that. No, you couldn't. Right. And no. then that's the genius of Ross of, of using that inner nest, that inner body of water that, that meanders through the entire course to create, um, you know, these varying patterns of where it comes into play on different greens and different fairways. And then where the greens come into play on the different ups and downs. Yeah. Right. There are some greens that are down and there's some greens that are elevated. Yeah, he's a genius routing. I mean, like if you think about it. How difficult it is it to design a golf course using those prominent features on the property and doing so where you don't have replicated distances? You know, it's not like every hole is 400 yards, 400 yards coming back, 
using that same ridge, there's all these differing, you know, yardages to think about the complexity of routing this course and getting the most out of those ridges and out of those little canyons and out of the creek. It's just pure genius. I mean, I mean, it's it's no wonder why of the six or seven courses that Ross would talk about in his career or, you know, talk about that he, he designed that Inverness was one of them because it's sheer genius when you play it and hard as nails. USGA, let's get this done. <laughs> uh, can you tell me a little bit about the history of women's golf here at Inverness? So, you know, Inverness was the host of uh, the first spot, basically, for women's golf in Toledo in 1954. This is on the heels of our Inverness Invitationals, right? So that uh, ended in 53, which was really just uh, individual matches. So they didn't even do the teams that year, and Jack Burke Jr. won uh, in 53. So, you know, in that year, it was uh, Betty McKinnon and Betsy Rawls that, that won this LPGA Pro-Am, but you know, you had names like Mickey Wright, um, you know, you had Patty Berg and Betty Jameson, L- Louise Suggs, you know, I think it was eight, all-time greats. Yeah, absolutely. Eight of the women that were in this 16 women field uh, are now in the Hall of Fame. And that was in 1954. And the, the LPGA was kind of struggling at that time. And uh, I think it was uh, Graf Mowen that that was instrumental and in, in had the relationship with the LPGA and helped bring this tournament to Inverness in Toledo. Uh, a lot of people know about the Marathon Classic, which used to be the Jamie Farr uh, you know, Classic at Highland Meadows. And that started, I think, in 84. But uh, women's golf came to Inverness first in 54 uh, you know, and, and really helped sort of you know, bring some notoriety to the, to the game because these women could play. They were good players. I mean, yeah. Mickey Wright, Jack Nicholas talks about Ben Hogan. It's the best swing yeah. you've ever seen, and Ben Hogan as well. So, you know, we're, we're still proud of, of continuing on this, this tradition of women's golf. And, and that history continues this year, right. here in a couple of weeks, right? Yep. So the LPGA came to us last year. You know, we, we were awarded the Solheim Cup, uh, I think it was maybe five or six years ago. And, and, and that's going to be fantastic. The women are really excited to come here and play this golf course. Well, they got a sneak peek last year with the drive-on championship with COVID, which is obviously just such an unusual year. And Mike Wan coming to Inverness uh, maybe about seven or eight weeks before the start of their season, which got delayed because of COVID. And he said, we want to do this pod system where the women stay in, in a town for two weeks and play two different tournaments. And we'd like to kick off the entire season in Toledo with the Marathon Classic, but we'd like to have them play your club first and call it the Drive-On Championship. And it'll be the kickoff event for the entire LPGA season. And we were all over that. So, um, you know, we, we wanted to be part of that. We knew that COVID was going to be a historic year anyways. And we wanted to have the women get a chance to see this golf course, that this new renovation uh, that we're really proud of. I mean, so many things came together in 2016 and 17 with Andrew Green, with uh, John Zimmers, you know, coming from Oakmont to Inverness uh, and helping to be a part of that with with andrew green and his company you know the mcdonald company that that moved the earth and land uh, to make these new holes and it's the women were just blown away with it so they thought it was fantastic and it looked good on tv so we're excited for you know the solheim cup well you know and i think what you're doing here is so great i mean if you even the doors i believe the to enter into the men's locker room has the solheim cup logo on it i mean the club has fully embraced the event and is proud to host it and i mean the grandstands are going up now we're 
three weeks away, four weeks away, something like that, and the work prep for the course. Oh, yeah. I'm going to blame my round on the heavy rough. I'm assuming <laughs> that's for the Solheim Cup, and it'll be shaved down a little bit before the, the ladies get here, but... Yeah, yeah, it'll, it's be, it'll be cut down a little bit, but no, it's it's going to be a great event. Yeah, all the pavilions are going up, and it, it's really starting to you know look like a real tournament. And hopefully, the you know the virus settles down, uh, and and people are allowed to come in here. International people as well. So yeah, you know, we're expecting you know twenty to twenty five thousand spectators. Today. That's great. It's just fantastic. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So be good. One little bit of history that you might want to add in there. We actually we believe that we may have the first female member of a private club on its scrolls in the United States. Really? What year? So in 1903, the year that we were founded, Clara Millard is a female golf member that was on our scrolls. From the beginning? From the beginning. Oh, that's fantastic. I did not know that. All my research did not come across that. Yeah. Do we know much about her? No, not, I mean, not a much. Not much. There's a little bit of a write-up in our centennial book, the yeah. copy that I gave you. So you'll see it in there. But that was something that we used, um, you know, when when going for the Solheim Cup and talking about women's golf history. So, I mean, that's that's very progressive very. and rare, 1903. Absolutely. But then again, I mean, I think there's a great track record for being progressive here. I mean, going from that to you know 1920, and you know, bringing the pros and changing the caste system, if you will, of professional golf, and the acceptance of that, and kind of opening the door to where. I mean, now it's an expectation. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, you know, pros playing at, you know, Oakmont and not expecting to go in the clubhouse. And it all kind of starts right here. Yeah. And SP Jermaine had his fingerprints over all of it because he just wanted to, it was all for the betterment of the game, right? And making sure that everybody had a chance to play, whether it was with public golf or private golf, um, pros and amateurs allowed That's, in the clubhouse, yeah. the whole nine yard, women, men, et cetera. Fascinating. So before we end, I, I have one more question for you. Um, you don't have a great track record in your clubhouses. Apparently, over the years, you've lost a couple of them. Is that fair to say? We we have. So the first clubhouse, you know, that was that was constructed obviously in 1903 when we started, and you know the the numbers show that it was built for around six thousand dollars, right? And in 1911, wow. uh, that burns down. And we actually have a photograph of the clubhouse burning, which is kind of funny that somebody stopped to take a picture of that. But uh, luckily, they saved a lot of the archives, the minutes, which is Oh, that's odds. important. Absolutely. And a lot of the clubs, the hickory shafts, those kind of things. So they built the next clubhouse, which was much bigger. And the price for that was $24,000 approximately, right? So that was in 1911. That burns down. What year? Do you 19, remember? I do. 1918. You just, you're not responsible enough, okay? Like the members of Inverness, stop smoking your cigars inside. It's a flammable clubhouse. And, and I, I, I think that both fires may have started from the kitchen. Is, yeah. Is oh, it's not uncommon. It's I, not I mean, uncommon. I'm, we joke now, but it is, I mean, whenever I see a club that has had, <laughs> that's had their clubhouse since, I mean, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. It almost seems more rare than not that it's the original clubhouse. I mean, fires happen all the time for many different reasons. But what I love about it is I'm, I'm in the Frank Stranahan room. I show up early to Inverness, and there are four photos on the back wall of the Stranahan room. And here's clubhouse number one, and then the other side of it is the clubhouse number one on fire. 
and then clubhouse number two and then this, the the fourth photo is clubhouse number two on fire <laughs> like so it's not only that you caught it once you caught it twice and here it is and then there's this beautiful three photos that stand behind me of Inverness's clubhouse is we're in the governor's room and I can't read it from here but it basically said first clubhouse and it gives you the years that it was open 1903 1911 uh, then the second one 1911 and 1917 and the third one it gives you uh, basically the dates from what 1918 to present and it says something to the effect of hasn't burned down yet Right. And I'm not sure <laughs> if the first one was made of straw or not, but the second one was made of wood. But this one that we're currently in, which was finished in April 20, 1920, was, was made of brick. So we're safe. I think we're, I we're, think we're, we're safe. in a, we're in a safe place. Yeah. I love it. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think people are going to find this fascinating. I hope we get this out before the Solheim Cup and people can enjoy this as they're watching on TV. Uh, your club... I knew quite a bit about Inverness. I didn't know all the little details. And that's one of the blessings of doing this show, specifically this show when I'm on site and you get to breathe the same air and you know see these things live. I will say this. Um, there are many clubs across this country that really cherish their history. Inverness does one of the best jobs of showcasing it. Um, I mean, I... You know, I came in an hour early and spent that entire hour walking through loitering essentially in your clubhouse. Didn't get thrown out. We got to, might want to check on security for that. Um, but checking out every room, checking out every display, just mesmerized. But it was done, it's, it's done in such a way that it's not cold. You know, it's like living history. It, these are events that happened a hundred years ago, but there's life in those stories that you tell. And I think what you've done so well, whether it's dedicating and having a Donald Ross room and a Ted Ray bar to help tell those stories, I just think the presentation of it, you really should be commended because it's just not a clubhouse. It's a living, breathing thing of your history that you showcase. So thank you for doing that. And Connor, thank you for coming. We oh, appreciate no, it. I'm, it's been fascinating. I mean, the course took its pound of flesh. Fortunately, I have a couple pounds to lose, so I'm okay. But uh, hopefully next time I, I bring a better round and uh, we do this and get it on film too because I think it's, I, I feel a little remiss that I get to see all this history and experience all this history without showing you you know, these unbelievable displays. You've just done a fa fantastic job. Well, it's a, it's a team effort. We've got a full committee. It's not just one historian, and uh, I think it's important with all the stuff that we have. But we've, we've been blessed with all the things that have happened here. And blessed uh, with people who care. And plus, I suppose blessed with people who care. But yeah. I mean, it's our Fenway Park. We we realize that. Toledo's really lucky to have it. It's a great town. Uh, the people are proud of it. But, uh, you know, the clubhouse and the golf course are both on the National Registry of Historic Places. Not a lot of golf clubs can say that in America. Yeah. So we're, we're you know, very lucky to have that. Thank you again. Thank you again. The grandfather clock within the foyer of the Inverness Club ticks on measuring the seconds, the minutes, the hours, and the days, until history again comes alive at this glorious club. This week, it's the glory of the Solheim Cup. Maybe soon, a U.S. Open. Either way, the Inverness Club holds a special place in our golf history, and this historian's heart. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.